Thank you, choir. That's so beautiful. Every so often I will have someone who wants to debate about the existence of suffering and evil in the world. And their argument usually goes something like this. If your God is all-loving and your God is all-powerful, then why is there evil? Why is there suffering in the world today? Because if there is evil, if someone is suffering, then either he doesn't care and he's not all-loving, or he can't do anything about it and he's all-powerful. I would like to suggest a third possibility. And it comes from our scripture this morning. Romans 8, 28, and I'm going to read through, through verse 39, and then back up to Job, the last chapter, uh, chapter 42 of Job. The sermon's entitled, Why is there evil in the world? And it's a, it's a hard subject, but I don't want you to think for one minute that God doesn't love you or that he doesn't care. Romans 8, 28 is Paul's take on this, and he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now back up to the last chapter of Job, right before Psalms. Job 42, verse 1 through 6. What has happened is Job has suffered, he's lost everything, he's complained. And in chapter 40, God reveals himself to Job. And upon seeing God, Job realizes how awesome and powerful and mighty God is and how wrong it was of him to even question him. And this is his response. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, 
but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Let's bow together. Father, there's suffering going on in our world right now. Innocent children who are starving. Folks through no fault of their own are sick. Cancer. Other terrible illnesses. Hurricanes hit totally at random. And good people suffer. And someone sitting on the sidelines might look at that and mock you. So help us see and understand from Scripture why bad things happen, especially to good people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why is there evil and suffering? Why, why do those things exist in our world? Such a loving and powerful God surely could prevent these things if he wanted to, or maybe he doesn't really love us and doesn't really care. Maybe he's powerless to do anything about it. The, the 25 cent theological term for this debate is theodicy. Theodicy is the theological term that refers to the debate over the existence of evil in the world, and it is an age-old debate. Why is there evil? Why does life seem so unfair? A teenage girl is diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer, and she asks, I've been a good girl my entire life. Why is this happening to me? Why is this not happening to some thug down on the street corner who doesn't care about anybody or anything? Huh, wow, those are good questions. And the Bible has some answers, and that's what I want us to look at this morning. And the first thing I want to remind you of, real simply, is that we live in a fallen world. The world in which we live is a world that God created, but the world God created in the Garden of Eden was perfect. There were no tragedies, no cancer, no sickness, no death. It was paradise. But Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God in their prideful way. And when that happened, sin came into the world. But let's not blame Adam and Eve here because every time you and I pridefully think we know better than God, think we can do things better than He, think that we understand more than He does, then we invite sin into our world too. So there is evil and sin in our world, not because God brought it, but because we brought it. We brought it in. And not only is our world fallen and tainted, this perfect created order that God gave us, is tainted by sin, but also a lot of what happens is a result of our freedom. Now God could have created us to be puppets. He could have made us robots. He could have programmed us to say and do everything that he instructs us to do. He could have had strings attached to our hands and our, our feet and had us do everything that he wants us to do. But God did not create us like that for a very good reason. Because he wanted us to choose to love him. Love that does not have a choice is not love at all. If you are programmed, if you are coerced into loving somebody, how do you know if it's genuine, sincere? 
But because God wanted us to choose to love him, there had to be the freedom to choose not to love him. And God created us to be free. And because of our choices and because of our decisions, there are a lot of things that happen in this world that are our fault. Now, more often than not, we will take credit when things go well, but when things don't go well, we want to blame God. We have moved him over to the sideline. We have pushed him out of so much of society and out of this world. But when things go bad, suddenly he's the fault. Suddenly he's the scapegoat. And we want to shake our fist at him and blame him. Because of our freedom, God rarely intervenes in miraculous ways. Now, I do believe in miracles, and I believe in the miracles of Scripture, and I believe that miracles happen every day in our world. But more often than not, when things happen in a certain sequence, God does not intervene. If someone falls out of a 10-story window, he could catch them in the palm of his hand and lay them gently on a sidewalk, but that does not usually happen. When someone is, is drinking and driving and lose control of the car and, and hit uh, an innocent family. He could have steered that car in another direction, but rarely does that happen. He allows the natural laws to operate the way they are. So a hurricane will hit the coast of Japan and, and people will be killed, or, or Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, or a, a wildfire out in California will take the lives of innocent people. Just because that's the natural law and natural order and God does not ordinarily interfere in those laws. So why do innocent children suffer? Because we live in a world that God created, but sin has tainted it. Sin has spoiled it. A better question is why do we even care? Why do we care? that bad things happen to people. I tell you why, and this is a, a better debatable question than why is there evil. The reason why I think that we care is because we have a sense of what a perfect world would look like. God has implanted in us a sense of right and wrong. Even a hardened criminal who makes his living stealing gets angry when someone steals from him. Now, what's the irony of that? The irony is that even though he knows he's stealing, he knows it's wrong. Because God has created and implanted in us a sense of, of right and wrong. And the only way we can do wrong is if we rationalize it. If we circumvent it somehow and get around the fact that we know that stealing or anything like that is wrong. Because God has implanted in us an idea, an image of a perfect created order, a place where there is no injustice, no unfairness. It's called the kingdom of God. And Jesus brought it when he came to earth. And wherever men and women exercise the power of God, the sovereign freedom of God in their lives, that kingdom exists. But we won't know it fully until God takes us to heaven or until Jesus comes again with his mighty angels and establishes his kingdom fully here on earth. But we have a sense of what that kingdom looks like, a perfect place, like the Garden of Eden where everything is good and where there is no evil and no suffering. 
and no pain. So the problem is we live here in this world in the meantime. And we've got to make the best of it. And we've got to figure out somewhere along the way, are we going to hang on to God and believe in him in spite of the problems that we face and the challenges and the hurts that harm us? How do we live? Well, God knew that we would be asking that question. And so he gave us the story of Job. You know the story of Job. Satan and and God are having a conversation. And and Satan asks God, who is the the best man on the face of the earth? And God says, consider my man Job. And Satan looks at Job and he says, yeah, but he loves you. He is righteous only because of everything you've done for him. Look, he has wealth, he has possessions, he has land, he has family, he has health, he has everything that anybody could want. But if you take those things away from him, he will curse you. God says, no, he won't. And Satan says, in effect, okay, prove it. And so in the matter of a few days, Job loses all of his children, all of his possessions, all of his health. And three so-called friends come to visit Job. And initially... They do the right thing. They just sit with him for seven days in silence and hurt with him, which is probably the best thing you can do when you have a friend who's hurting. But after seven days, they make a mistake. They open their mouths (laughs) and start trying to explain to Job why these terrible mishaps have befallen him. Job, all these bad things have happened to you because you deserve them. There must be an explanation. You must have sinned. You must have hurt somebody. You must have done something wrong or else these bad things would not have been happening to you. And Job is sitting there going, I can't, I don't don't believe that. I can't think of anything I've done to deserve this. But in in the perfect world of those three little friends, everything has to fit. If this bad thing happens, it must be because you deserve it. When something good happens, it must be because you deserve it. That's cause and effect. That's the way those three friends viewed the world. But that's not the way Job saw it. And so Job refused to accept what they were saying. And and at this point, I know you hear a lot about the patience of Job. The patience of Job. Actually, I don't think Job had a whole lot of patience. Because for 35 chapters in his book, he is complaining to God. He is whining. He is demanding an explanation from God. He wants to know why these things have happened to him. But in the midst of his whining, Job never rejected God. He never turned his back on God. He engaged in an argument, in a debate with God. And and listen, that's, that's a good thing. When you're hurting, cry out to God. Don't turn your back on him. Argue with him. Read the Bible, pray, spend time with him. He can, he's big enough to take it. He can handle it. Anything you want to say to him, just talk to him. Talk it out. Don't bottle it up and turn your back. Well, for 35 chapters, this goes on between Job and God. And then in chapter 40, God actually visits Job and lets Job see him in all of his power and glory. But he never gives him an explanation. He just lets Job see him. And that's in chapter 42 when Job's, wow, 
now I have seen you, and I know that you are the God, and I repent in dust and ashes that I ever questioned you. So the bottom line from the book of Job is if you know God is good and you know he is loving and that you are his beloved child, then you can handle the evil and suffering in the world and still have a measure of peace and still know that God is in control and it's going to be okay. It may not seem like it in the midst, but it will be okay. So here's some quick lessons to live by. How do we live in the meantime? First of all, I just want you to know that God is good. God is God and God is good. No matter what happens, know that God loves you and he desires the very best for you. When Martin Luther, the the Protestant reformer of the 16th century, when his son died, his wife started shouting at Martin Luther and wanted to know, where was God when our son died? And Luther responded, the same place he was when his own son died, watching and weeping with us. God is love. And in Paul's words, nothing will ever be able to separate you from that love. Nothing can happen, not life, not death, not famine or persecution or nakedness or peril or sword. Nothing can separate us from the one who is love, our God. So first of all, I want you to know that God is still God and God is good when bad things happen. Secondly, I want you to stay close to him. Satan's favorite ploy is to challenge people when they are hurting and say, if God really loved you, he would not have let this happen. He could have prevented this from happening. Therefore, reject God. Despise God. There is no God. And a lot of people cave in to Satan's temptations. Catherine was telling me about a friend she had at Mercer who is an avowed atheist. And uh, sadly, last year, his brother was killed in an auto accident. And he posts a lot of things on Facebook about it. But one of the most chilling posts he wrote was, if there is a God, he will have to ask me for forgiveness after the death of his brother. And when she read that post to me, my first impulse, I know he wrote that in the midst of great grief, but my initial response was, how is this God's fault? Why is this God's fault? Was, was God driving the car? Was, did God make the car? You're an avowed atheist and you don't believe in God, and yet now you want to blame him for this? Why does everything bad that happens have to be God's fault? Sometimes bad things happen just because there is evil in the world that came in with sin. We rarely give God credit when good things happen, but we are so, let something bad happen, and boy, we start shaking our fist at God immediately and demand an explanation. Job's wife was fed up with Job after losing everything, and she said, why don't you just curse God and die? And a few chapters later, Job said defiantly, though he slay me, yet will I love him. Listen to me here. 
Satan has one purpose in life, and that is to destroy you in this world and the next. But God is love, and God will never do anything to harm you. He is never the, never the source of evil, never the source of suffering. That's not his nature. That's contrary to everything that he is. He does chastise. He does discipline. But the way a loving parent disciplines a child for their own good and their own protection, never would a parent intentionally bring harm upon a child. And if an earthly parent would not do that, how much more so would God never do that who loves us perfectly? There's a great Methodist preacher in... Um, I think it was First Methodist in Atlanta named Pierce Harris, and he lost his wife in an auto accident. And he got a note from a church member that said, I hope your terrible loss will not destroy your faith. And Harris said he felt like writing back and saying, Man, haven't I already lost enough already without losing my faith too? Why would I cast aside the only thing that is keeping me afloat? And so, my counsel when you are hurting, crawl up into the lap as close to the one as you possibly can who said, come unto me all ye who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. God loves you. He is good. We may not always understand, but he is good. Finally, and this comes from Romans 8, 28. Ask God to bring something good from it. Something good can come out of it. Job had no way of knowing that his story would, would help generations, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that would benefit from his story down through the ages. Paul declared, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we believe that no matter how bad, how awful, how terrible something is, God is still able to reach down and redeem it in some way and make something good come from it. And sometimes you may look back on it and say, you know, God, I did not, I didn't want that to come into my life. And it caused me so much grief and so much pain but I see now how you have used it to bring good. And I trust you because I know you'll be with me always. E. Stanley Jones became a missionary, lifelong missionary to India. And uh, right after his conversion, he was working in a law library at a courthouse in Baltimore, Maryland, I think. And he told his supervisor that he had become a Christian and he was going to go on the mission field. And his supervisor took that as a challenge and said, I'm going to do everything I can to jerk that faith out of you. And he was true to his word. He made Stanley Jones' life as miserable, as difficult as he possibly could, throwing every kind of obstacle, every kind of um, diversion into his life that he could. But what it served to do was make Stanley Jones that much more resolute in his faith. And when he got to India, he said there were things that he could have never 
overcome them had he not been prepared by the cruelty of his supervisor back in America. He said, I learned then to face challenges in life like an airplane, not with the wind, but against it. And when facing opposition, I learned to let it help me rise instead of cast me down. That's what opposition can do. Make us stronger and more determined in our faith. Much of what I have shared here this morning has been shaped by the little book called The Will of God by Leslie Weatherhead, written in 1944. It's only about 50 pages, but we read it in seminary and uh, talked about God's will and the different kinds of will, the circumstantial and the intentional and the ultimate will of God and how those things kind of fluctuate from, between, from one to the other. And there's an interesting analogy that, that Leslie Weatherhead and he says, imagine this. Imagine that all the children, all the toddlers of the world unite. And they get together in a meeting and they can communicate with one another and the one up front stands up and straightens his bib and says, brothers and sisters, I don't believe our parents really love us. Look at your knees. They're all red and scraped. And look around you. I mean, there, there are hard surfaces. There are corners that can hurt, harm us. I don't think a loving parent would actually let us live in a world like this. There's just too many things that can harm us. And so he said, I would entertain a motion at this point. And a chubby little fellow in back raised his hand and stood up. Let me see what he says. Mr. Chairman, I move we protest the carelessness of our parents and demand that in the future no furniture can have sharp corners, no floors can be hard, all hard surfaces be banished from play areas, all claws removed from the paws of cats. No doubt such a motion would pass unanimously given the wisdom and foresight of toddlers. And then Weatherhead says, that's a lot like how we are to God. We complain to Him. We think we know better. We think we know what's best. And just as parents may try to explain to children why they tell them no sometimes and why they have to discipline them sometimes and why there are hard surfaces that you sometimes fall down on and scrape your knees, children would never really understand. Nor could we understand the reasons that God has for us because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We could never fathom the depths of the mysteries of God. And so what we have to do is just trust Him. We trust what God based on what we do know about God. And what we do know about God is that He is good, He is loving, His character has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And he loves us. And he wants the best for us. And sometimes bad things happen because there is sin in the world. And sometimes bad things happen because there is freedom in our world. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love you. And he's not going to take care of you. He is. 
And if an earthly father gives good things to his children, how much more so does our heavenly father do for us? Let's bow together. God, we live in a world that has fallen and is imperfect. And when we see an innocent child suffer, it breaks our hearts. When we see a child taking chemo, when we see um, an innocent family struck and killed by a drunk driver, when we see a, a hurricane strike a coast or a, a, a wildfire burn through a subdivision and lives lost. It breaks our hearts. But we believe that it breaks yours too. And yes, you could reach down and just place your hand in front of the car or in front of the fire or in front of the hurricane and turn it away where it could do no harm. But that's not the kind of world in which we live. And so we testify to you today that we love you and we believe in you. And we're going to trust you in what we don't understand. Because what we do understand is good. Thank you for being patient with children such as we who sometimes in our frailties and shortcomings get angry and shake our fist at you and demand an explanation. Thank you for being patient with us and loving us and never leaving us nor forsaking us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.